what do you mean evacuate the building? Like walk out into the street and and get hit directly by the nuclear explosion? That's a terrible idea. Um, it just showed that it just showed that they they were they were completely thoughtless in their attempt to adapt to a, a nuclear missile threat. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello and welcome to War College. I am your host, Matthew Galt. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. It's fine. I'm fine. Stop asking. Between the climate apocalypse, tensions in the Middle East, the dissolution of decades-old nuclear treaties, artificial intelligence, 3D-printed weapons of mass destruction, immortal humans, CRISPR, and drone swarms, it feels like we're closer to a science fiction apocalypse every day. These days, it's not a question of when the end of human civilization comes, but how. Mike Pearl has spent years obsessing over the day it finally happens. That's the title of his new book, which studies the various methods by which humanity could achieve mass extinction. Pearl is a journalist whose work has appeared in Vice, The Outline, The All, and The Hollywood Reporter. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Matthew. It's great to be here. Uh, Mike, why are you trying to scare everybody? I'm not. Uh, I... I started writing about um, the things that scare me uh, a few years ago, um, and and the way that I like to describe what I do is um, I used to be terribly afraid of pit bulls, and I investigated how scared a person should generally be of pit bulls in an article called "How Scared Should I Be of Pit uh, of Pit Bulls for Vice." Um, and I discovered that a pit bull is uh, more likely than any other. First of all, I discovered that pit bulls are a consumer category, not a not a breed. Uh, and second of all, I discovered that dogs described as pit bulls are very likely to attack something, maybe another dog, but that no dog is especially capable of killing a person reliably. Uh, you can, you can kind of fight off a dog if you're an able-bodied adult. If you're, if you're enfeebled and elderly, a dog might kill you. But if you are, um, if you are able-bodied and healthy, um, you, you can probably get the dog to stop biting you or, or get the dog, you know, the dog will do that sort of like latch onto your arm thing. Um, and then somebody will have to pry its jaws, but it won't kill you. Um, and so discovering that dogs probably won't and can't kill you was a revelation for me. I'm, 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 it sort of reframed my fear of dogs and made it so that if a pit bull seems friendly, I'll happily pet it. And that kind of encapsulates what I was trying to do with this book. Like, you know, open your eyes as wide as possible to what is scary about these topics, but not, you know, go out of my way to scare you and, and deal with the things about these things that maybe aren't scary or in some cases can be kind of hopeful. Um, so yeah, I'm not trying to scare people. I'm just trying to get people to look at these things clearly. It's trying to banish fear, in fact. Yeah, 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 yeah. You could say that. All right. Well, one of the things I really love about the book is its structure. Um, can you explain to the audience, like, what, what the structure of the book is? I think that's really fascinating. So it's, um, it's generally structured, uh, the, the chapters go from, no, 
Nobody's asked this question before, by the way. So thank you. Um, it's it, the chapters go. There are nineteen chapters, and they go generally from the m- least grim possibilities at the start of the book to the most grim possibilities toward the end of the book. Well, you know, with with a few sort of exceptions mixed through, but that's the general structural trend of of how it's written. So it'll get more and more grim as you go until the epilogue, which is about the end of all existence. Um, and uh, the individual chapters are structured um, such that there's a, uh, a, little, a little bit of fiction to start you off, to kind of like whet your appetite, to get you thinking. Um, and then the reported part um, kind of defends the piece of fiction that I wrote. Usually defends the piece of fiction that I wrote. I don't generally uh, write a little piece of fiction and then refute it, say, oh, but that's not really what would happen. Sometimes sometimes what I report out is going to kind of, um, in some ways, you know, imply that what you just read in the fiction section isn't especially likely to to take place. But, you know, when I write that little piece of fiction, I'm trying to get you to think about the thing I, the, the way I want you to frame it. So, you know, speaking of ones that aren't apocalypses, there's a chapter on the day that the last human driven car rolls off the lot. And to get you thinking the way that I'm thinking about this topic, my little piece of fiction, I took you to India, um, so that you would stop thinking about how that's going to work in like Manhattan and start thinking about how that's going to work in like Mumbai. All right. On that note, I want to point out that you've got, you know, you, you run the gamut here. We've got, you know, your your last fish in the ocean, uh, billionaires taking over the world, which I'll, which I'll point out is number two. Um, the last entry in the book before the epilogue is the day the last cemetery runs out of space. Why is that the most grim? Because <laughs> it's about cemeteries, it's spooky skeletons and <laughs> corpses and coffins, and <laughs> that's why. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Because because it's about it's about your it's a, it is literally about your death, dear reader. It is about like the fact that if you if for instance if you're a veteran right now, if you served in Afghanistan last year, um, you're not gonna you're probably not gonna be able to be buried in Arlington, no matter how. Uh, no matter no matter what kind of bravery you served with, uh, it's going to be full. That's not that's not going to be available to you. Um, there's a pretty good chance you're not going to be able to be buried anywhere. They're not gonna they're not gonna have that available. Although I don't think the last cemetery is going to run out of space I- inside of your lifetime. But it's gonna it's changing. It's it is dramatically changing. This also speaks to uh, another thing that I think is very interesting about the book is like obviously nukes and the internet shutting down the really like frightening world ending events are in here, but there's also a lot of apocalypses and Armageddon's in the sense of great civilizational change, right? Not just the end of the world, but the beginning of something else new. Can you talk about that? Most, most interviewers, most interviewers do not pick up on this theme of the book. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's, that is really what I was going for. Yeah, the best example of that is the first chapter, um, which is on, uh, the, the monarchy, uh, being abolished in the UK. Um, which is something that the people that I spoke to at Oxford said was eventually going to happen, that the UK will abolish its monarchy. And uh, if you look through the existing scholarship on this, 
uh, nobody wants to think about it. Nobody wants to contemplate it. So, um, you know, I went through, I went to constitutional scholars and I said, like, what happens to your country if you do away with the, the monarchy? And they were like, mm, glad somebody's finally asking this. Um, so, you know, like these things may not be, it may not be the end of the world. It, the mon losing the monarchy is the end of the world. If you like work in British tourism, then it's kind of the apocalypse for you. Um, but for most people, it's not. It's just a kind of paradigm shift that people don't think about in any kind of detail. Or if they do think about it, then they're somebody, they're like a, they're like a, um, um, uh, somebody from the Tory party. And they're like, uh, oh, if we do that, it could lead to the end of monarchy. Or, oh, that, that kind of thinking could lead us toward a republic. And, what they mean is they could lead us toward something unthinkable. They're not, they're not thinking all the way to the, a republic. They're just say, they're just using the republic as an example of something unthinkable that they really, really don't want to happen. So what I like to ask is, well, okay, but what then? You know, what happens then? Okay. So this, this book is kind of born out of this series of articles, a column you had advice for a long time about the future and kind of like, how worried should I be or how scared should I be? I believe is the name of it, right? Yeah. It's born out of that one. And it's born out of one called hours and minutes, which is usually about war scenarios. Okay. So did you, it, it strikes me as we're talking about this, that, um, I think probably when I was a teenager, uh, that they're in, in like into my early twenties, there's kind of what I'll call non pejoratively a juvenile obsession with like the end of the world and end of the world scenarios. Um, but then as you study it, do you feel like you kind of, you, as you learned more, you kind of grew out of it and became more interested in the, the, the greater question of what comes after, because this stuff we don't end, right? Like even with a climate, even with climate devastation, there's still going to be something afterwards what the shape of that is is up to us to shape but there's still a future correct yeah i mean i think um so when we talk about the apocalypse we don't really define our terms uh if you're if you're if you're catholic then the apocalypse means the final judgment it means it means the end and you know and there's a and there's a process built into that there's you know certain their souls go to heaven people are sorted out it's not like it's not like there's just a period at the end of the sentence of existence and then there's no more but it, but it but it means a sort of theological end um i think to a lot of people um the apocalypse means uh human extinction which i don't think a lot of people think about in you know i think i think you know there are a lot of people who uh, they think about the climate apocalypse in a sense of like, oh, you know, um, uh, can I swear on this, by the way? Is this a swearing podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Go to 10. The, okay. So, I mean, so um, a lot of people, you know, look at climate change. You know, you have uh, Jonathan Franzen writing in the New Yorker, you know, oh, we're fucked. Uh, let's stop pretending that we can do anything about climate change. Um and then there are people who there are people who take that a step further and say we're all going to die. Let's go to the woods and learn to be in tune with like the dirt and soil and animals that live there as we contemplate finitude. And I don't think they're really thinking about um collapsed civilizations that currently exist, you know. There's this idea that that the temperature will increase to a point where I guess they think we'll all kill each other for food. Uh, they have such a dim view of humanity that they think that once once food supplies are, are cut off or once water is scarce, that we'll all 
slit each other's throats. And, you know, you can look at parts of Madagascar where that's very true right now. And things aren't great, but um, they're not all dead. And to say that to say that humanity is going to go extinct in the in the near term is sort of weirdly naive. Um, so today I just heard a um, I was listening to the I was listening to the Current Affairs podcast and they had a um, they had a they had uh, I forget his name the guy who works for Matt Brunig's think tank um, who does uh, Native American stuff and he described the Native Americans as people who are familiar with what it's like to live after the end times uh, you know this was all theirs pretty much the worst thing imaginable happened. And, uh, and now, and now they're kind of living with that, you know, that is, that happened, they, they look through everything through that sort of scope of, uh, of it, everything's viewed in retrospect. Everything's viewed sort of like through the lens of it all, this is all the, this is all the cost of what they did to us, you know? Um, and I think that, that, um, our, our, our descendants will kind of, view us the, the exact same way that settler colonialists are seen by the Native Americans as these bastards who screwed you and you just sort of like you live with what they did forever but it doesn't mean you're dead it just means things are a lot worse than they were it kind of feels like how zoomers and millennials view the baby boomer generation right but amplified yeah. amplified exactly yeah yeah Okay. On that note, I want to transition to what I thought was one of the way one was one of the very interesting questions that you asked in the book, uh, and I want to dive deep into this one. So, what's the likelihood that the U.S. is going to ban all firearms, and what would happen? Great. So, um, uh, the likelihood that the U.S. is going to ban firearms is pretty much nil. Uh, I use the um, the Australian firearms ban as my model for banning all firearms, which essentially means not banning. So that's first of all, I couldn't get to the point where you you ban all of you. You can't ban all of something. You know, cocaine is not all cocaine is not banned, and all methamphetamine is not banned. You can get both of those with a prescription. Um, and so if you go to Australia right now, where guns are, I'm using finger quotes, banned. Uh, you can, you, there are still gun shops there. I went to one in Brisbane. Um, it's just that they are a lot harder to get and there's a large buyback program and, uh, and now there are a lot of regulations in the way of, uh, of getting yourself a gun. Um, so I used that as my model and even that is extremely, extremely, extremely unlikely. Um, I, I sort of took it as my premise of my chapter that, that some, Black Swan event has happened and made uh, and made banning guns politically popular um, because first of all it's not going to happen unless it's politically popular and 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 it, and that makes it really hard to write about because um, you know I'm getting on the phone with people from the ATF I'm getting on the phone with people who are NRA members who are you know part of the part of part of what we call gun culture and they're saying like. Um, you know, what you're talking about is crazy. Taking away our guns, you know, nobody, if, if you do this, it's, it, you don't realize, you don't realize just what this culture is and, and, and what we stand for. And this is our freedom and stuff like that. And, you know, and they're completely right. They're absolutely right that like, I think most people don't appreciate just how, um, just how fervent they are about, about 
the justification of gun ownership. Um, so I sort of had to, I sort of had to premise it on something having happened that has made the idea of banning guns popular because otherwise it just doesn't, it doesn't compute. You have to be, you kind of have to be living in a different America for a gun ban to even be in the air because, because it's, I mean, you know, Marvel movies, uh, you know, name, name a hobby, name a fandom, name something that people love. It just doesn't compare to how much people in this country love guns. It, they, they are, it's like the number one hobby is like collecting them buying ammo, going in the backyard and shooting them. It's what Americans love to do. Um, and I think people on the coasts kind of don't appreciate just how much people love them. Um, so that's, that's first of all, not, not at all likely. You And you kind of got into gun culture a little bit for this particular piece, right? I bought a gun, yeah. What'd you buy? Um, I just bought a, uh, I bought a Ruger 10-22 uh just a 22 just a 22 rifle a squirrel shooter gun um because i just wanted to go to uh an appleseed shooting shooting thingy you know do you know those appleseed shooting seminars i i do yeah have you ever been to one no i've never been to an appleseed um they uh they are it's fun um you shoot you sure do shoot a lot of rounds um uh, you bring you bring a little you bring a little mini stockpile of ammunition and you shoot all day and you lie prone and shoot and you you learn you learn to like reload real fast and and aim and shoot and it's really great for beginners um but they also teach it to you on the premise that that, that you're sh- like the targets are redcoats and you're defending liberty you're never they're not like now you're now you're going to shoot this deer or there's like a bear in the woods or something like that it's not hunting they are teaching you how to d- defend your homeland or whatever it is it is about shooting people preferably in the head and the, and it's like the most popular it's like the most popular beginner marksmanship course in the country and it is and it is all about you know killing people that surprised me, and and not only that, but it's all about sort of um, teaching you the value of the revolutionary, the sacrifices of the Minutemen, and and stuff like that. You know, they 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 really sort of like drill that into your head as the value of what you're what you have in your hands is the gun that was you know assured to you by the Constitution. So you know, all I mean to say is that this is kind of like step one for gun owners. For for rank beginners, people take their kids to or their teens to Appleseed to like introduce them to what it's like to have a gun. It is not some kind of hardcore militia indoctrination, and yet there is that tinge to it, you know. And the one that I went to was in Southern California. It wasn't in Tennessee. Um, so uh, you know, this is it is absolutely in it is it is part and parcel of gun ownership that you are not going to let somebody, um, as the saying goes, come and take it, you know? Uh, On that note, we're going to pause here for a break. You're listening to War College. We are on with Mike Pearl talking about his book, The Day It Finally Happens.
All right, thank you for suffering through that, War College listeners. We are on with Mike Pearl. We are talking about the day it finally happens, and he was just talking to us, or just telling us about uh, American gun culture and how we're probably not going to lose the guns in America. It's probably not going to happen because it would take much too drastic a cultural shift, um, and we just like our guns too much. Yep, <laughs> yep, that's right. And and uh, and and. You know, I nonetheless I, I I write about the culture, but I do go through, um, you know how how to sort of change the constitution, how a ban would work, how uh, how how the legislation would give way to buybacks, and um, you know one point that's very interesting is that that most state constitutions have you know extra added uh, you know extra little Second Amendment things written into the state constitution just in case they repeal the federal constitutional uh <laughs> promise that you can own a gun um so you know you'd have to you'd have to not only repeal the second amendment you'd have to repeal the second amendment and also invalidate all of those state constitutional amendments federally um so like so like i say it would have to be very doing this would have to suddenly be very politically popular um there'd have to be gun buyback programs you'd then have to uh, you'd have to really then staff up the ATF, and uh, you'd have to be ready to basically make war, basically wage war. Um, and right, because uh, you it know, would, and it would probably lead to an armed insurgency of some kind. You know, and I hate to, I hate to, I, I mean, I think there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of gun activists who would criticize me for saying, for for repeating that because I think that's a, um, that's a. That's a sort of like right wing talking point that oh you can't ban the guns because they'll they'll wage war that's their that's their that's the kind of some would say that's the kind of blackmail that keeps the status quo as it is uh, but to that I would say well I mean I take them at their word and they got the guns and they like to use them so if they're if they are in fact blackmailing us or if they are in fact you know threatening us with war uh if we try to take their guns they can wage the war i don't think necessarily that they would win it but what but you know what the conclusion that i come to is that um you know the u.s military apparatus is is just the biggest thing in the world and um and and a lot of a lot of the people who own guns were part of that military apparatus and could put up a fight but that's not to say that they would win if you look at if you look at when the when the three percenters show up to a protest to like you know stand guard over the proud boys or whatever it is they like to do um a lot of them look very impressive a lot of them are you know are have just come back from wars they they have their training is fresh in their minds they're still in great shape they can they could probably really do some damage a lot of them not so much a lot of them if they if they saw action it was a long time ago and uh and and they're probably not ready for for you know serious guerrilla warfare so if if there were a war between the united states it's a horrifying concept but you know a war a war to take the guns the great gun war if it were if it happened um i think a lot of people underestimate how much damage the gun fans could do uh but the u.s would probably prevail the question is whether when people saw the news and when people saw the social media posts about this, about the drone strikes in the upper peninsula of Michigan, would they, would they say, oh yeah, keep, 
keep taking the guns. This is good. I want the guns gone. Or would they say, stop dropping bombs on American soil? You know, that's the question. And so if even if it were popular to know how people would dig in their heels and fight, uh, would would it stay popular as we tried to actually execute it? That's my question. Uh, I... I have not as much faith in the U.S. military to win a prolonged insurgency against an enemy that knows it really well. Um, that's my take. And I, I also live and work in the South, so <laughs> I've got a different perspective on things. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think I don't I, – I, we, I mean, we could do a whole episode just about like what that kind of war would look like. I, I think what your point about um, – People not being ready for things like drone strikes on high value targets on American soil. I think that would be, but now we're in like super speculation territory. <laughs> so let's- yeah, well, I mean, you're talking about. I mean, you say if if it were if it came to that, if it came to like guerrilla warfare between uh, between the actual U.S. military and and people who who know this area. I mean, the military is going to be a lot of people who who know the area pretty well too. Um, but but you're talking about I mean what you're saying is is that is that they're they're dug into the ground they are they they have in many cases set up set up with these battles in mind they have set up their homes with these exact battles in mind and they, and they are really really ready to wage them and so the question becomes because if you just go in with troops a lot of these gun fans could probably fight them off they really could they have tannerite bombs in their trees and tripwires and i mean they are they truly are you know military ready so the question becomes because but the gun fans don't have bunker busters and they don't have you know they don't they don't have uh air to surface missiles and they they aren't they aren't they they don't have uh a10s you know there's there's a certain amount of stuff that the u.s military has that is you know unquestionably superior to what uh the, to what the gun fans would would have um and so the question just becomes whether they'd actually use that stuff you know well it's been 18 years in afghanistan and we're still using that stuff right right well i mean yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so 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 you're you're talking about you're talking about that same kind of like police action versus versus full scale war sort of thing yeah i mean i i have a hard time imagining that there would be that it would be as intense as what we're doing in Afghanistan and have done in Afghanistan. And I, right. you know, and I, it would depend on like what escalation looks like and how many different forces you're actually fighting, because there's probably going to be many very different desperate groups and not just kind of one unified thing. Um, there's just a lot of weird stuff up in the air for what a new American civil war over a gun buyback would look like. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and this is, that's the thing about the book, you know, is, is that, um, is that you can, you could look at my premises and come to different conclusions than I did, uh, very easily, just depending on the, the kind of like the story that you tell of sort of how this is going to play out, you know? Um, well, let's move on. I, I think, sure, sure. <laughs> let's move on to a happier topic, uh, and talk about nuclear war. Um, great. Your family was in Hawaii when the false alarm went off. Can you tell us? That's right. <laughs> can you tell us their story? Right. Like what what happened? So, uh, so this is the this is the false alarm. Uh, this is the the Hawaiian missile false alarm where everybody got a text message that said uh, that a missile was inbound and that it wasn't a drill and that you needed to seek cover. Um, so my parents were at a 
at a very large and well-known Hawaiian hotel uh, that shall remain nameless, um, which had absolutely no plan of any kind for <laughs> for an inbound nuclear missile, um, which uh, which a lot of uh, you know s- safety safety types uh, generally speaking do not uh, do not make plans with with uh, nuclear strikes in mind. Um, and that was definitely the case here. They just sort of, it was, it was this bizarre sort of flailing moment where people were running around the, the hotel, um, kind of guessing as to what the, as to what the best places to be were. They decided on a stairwell, uh, it toward the middle of the building and they were exactly right. They went to the bottom floor of the hotel. They found, um, they found a stairwell that was toward the center. If it had been, if it had been on the exterior side of the building, the stairwell, then that wouldn't have been such a great idea. But since it was toward the middle of the building, it was a really good place to be. But there was nobody there to tell them that. And there was nobody there who had thought this through. They went to the lobby. The lobby said, um, oh, if you, uh, it, you know, if the, if the government tells us to evacuate, then we'll evacuate the, then we'll evacuate the building. And it's like, what do you mean evacuate the building? Like walk out into the street and, and get hit directly by the nuclear explosion. That's a terrible idea. Um, it just showed that it just showed that they're, it, they were, they were completely thoughtless in their attempt to adapt to a, a nuclear missile threat. And the thing about nuclear missiles is that they are, or the thing about, the thing about nukes in general is that they are not the abrupt opening of a portal to hell. They are just very, very big bombs and i think that's something that people don't appreciate kind of about what they are i think we i think when we talk about them we talk about them as if if one goes off anywhere ever that's the end of the world uh which you know it's it's a it's a it's a good step in that direction but it's not the but one one nuclear missile going off is not the apocalypse yeah that's interesting this is one of my wheelhouses actually um and i think you're exactly right and the more I've learned about nuclear weapons, nuclear preparedness, nuclear safety, I've actually been much less afraid of nukes uh, in the past. Me too, years. yeah. Because it really, yeah, me too. Yeah, because you really, you, you talk to, uh, like in your book, you talk to Brooke uh, Budemayer from the Liverpool Lab, right? Uh, who's this guy that does these amazing lectures on like what to do to prepare yourself. And like you watch those and you kind of get an idea of what you're dealing with. Um it's really like almost any other disaster with just a few key specifics, right? In terms of yes. preparation. Yeah. And, and, uh, and in some ways it's more localized than a lot of disasters, uh, you know, which I, you know, I hate, I, I hate to say because the destruction is pretty widespread for a bomb, but it's, it tends to be pretty local. Yeah. Yeah. I was in, um, New York recently talking about or talking to the office of emergency management there about nukes. Um, and he, the, the gentleman I was talking to was like, what's the, what is the material difference between the advice we give for nukes versus any other disaster? It's generally the same. Right. And it's just like what you just said, like get into the middle of a building. Um, or if you can get below ground, get below ground into the basement, take shelter, Wait a while for the dust to settle, quite literally, and then then figure out what's going on at that point. Yeah, and 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 not only that, but um, I uh, my my folks were convinced that if it were that 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 it was a sort of like 
uh, it, that it was a strategic strike. They thought this through. They were like, well, the Pacific fleet of the of the U.S. Navy is pretty much based, uh, you know, in in Pearl Harbor, just right over there. They were they were on they were on Oahu. They were in Honolulu. They easily could have they easily could have been hit by a missile that was aimed at the uh, Navy installation in Pearl Harbor. You know, could have been, it could have been Pearl Harbor too. And they figured that it probably was, and that they were doomed. Um, and so I I went to. I'm sure you've used Nuke Map. Oh yes, Mr. Alex 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 Wellerstein has been on the show before. So yeah, definitely. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. So I went to I went to Nuke Map right then, and because I because I'm a big fan, um, I went to Nuke Map while I was on the phone with my parents, and I was like, well, let me see. And then I brought up the uh, the the actual um, the megatonnage uh, or the the kilotonnage of the mo- of the biggest nu- uh, North Korean nuclear weapon that had been tested so far. Um, I, I dialed that into nuke map and I dropped it right on Hickam field in Hawaii, you know, saying like, okay, well, if, if they, if they sent their biggest nuke and scored a bullseye right on Hickam field and, and then I looked at where they were, they were, they were in, uh, they were in, they were in Waikiki, a nuke in Hickam field leaves Waikiki pretty much untouched. And, uh, and, and a, a large nuke that, t- that targets Hickam Field leaves Waikiki pretty untouched. And I think they were pretty surprised. But that's a nuclear bomb, you know? It's, it, I thought it killed, you know, the entire city. And it's like, well, it kills a lot of people. It certainly doesn't, it certainly doesn't spare a lot of te- the territory or in the immediate surroundings of, of its target. But, you know, um, a certain a certain range out from a from a nuclear weapon you're 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 not going to be knocked you're not going to be knocked down by the shockwave you're probably not going to be hit by the immediate blast of radiation you're there might there'll be fires there'll be there'll obviously be the danger that comes from you know being near a a, a horrible disaster that just happened uh, you're not going to be in a good situation certainly but the immediate effects of a of a nuclear strike are will 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 leave you alone you know where i where i'm sitting right now in the san fernando valley if they dropped a if they dropped even i believe even if they dropped a czar bomba the biggest nuclear bomb ever dropped on downtown los angeles where i am right now in the san fernando valley i would be fine um so i think we kind of in our minds i think we kind of overestimate the size of these of these explosions as big as they are we kind of we kind of overestimate them we turn them into something supernatural when they are they are just they're just weapons well the other source of fear for these is that we don't normally conceive of them as just one right yeah we're thinking about a massive launch for good reason yeah. for good reason yeah and, and, and i mean and it, and it makes sense to think of it that way particularly since um we haven't seen a lot of uh a lot of retaliation plans. We haven't actually, you know, th- those haven't been, those haven't been declassified. I'm not sure any of them have ever been declassified. Um, you know, the the actual uh, the actual step by step plans for nuclear retaliation, for instance. If we if if um, if North Korea drops, if North Korea uses one of their new submarine fired missiles to 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 bomb Los Angeles. Uh, then do, what do what what do we retaliate with? Do we retaliate with a hundred missiles? Do we retaliate with 
with uh, nuclear weapons at all? Do we use conventional warfare as our nuclear retaliation? Um, there's there's something to be said for using our huge conventional military to uh, retaliate, particularly since uh, North Korea is prepare is has been preparing itself for decades for for nuclear retaliation. Um, you know, going underground and uh, you know building out huge huge tunnels, huge inhabitable tunnels that we don't even pick up on our satellite photographs. So, like, is it even a good idea to, you know, quote-unquote bomb them back to the Stone Age? We like to say that we would, uh, we love to use this phrase, wipe North Korea off the map. But if we used all of our nuclear weapons on North Korea, you know, we'd certainly do some damage, but could it be wiped on the map? It's not It's not clear that it could be wiped off the map in the way that people think in their, like, genocidal nuclear fantasy. Um, so is is it necessarily, it, would we necessarily uh, retaliate with nukes? Yeah, probably, but not necessarily. Well, you're also speaking to uh, the limits of air power itself to win a uh, conflict, but uh, that's a whole other podcast. Um, sure. <laughs> so of all your doomsday scenarios, which do you still find the most frightening? Hmm. Which do I still find the most frightening? Probably the internet going down. Uh, I, I, was, I was shocked when I – I was shocked when I researched that – at just how, uh, just how helplessly we would be if we lost the internet, and just how, like how sudden of a change that that would be. Uh, it, in it, like, I'll put it to you this way: uh, the reason the reason that um, the loss of the internet scares me so much is that I thought I was going to kind of debunk it. And I came away from it more scared. I I thought I'm on the I'm on the coast. I'm a I work in media. Of course, I'm helpless without the internet. I'll go find somebody who is going to be fine without the internet, and I'll talk to them. And so I found a long haul trucker, and I was like, "What would happen if you didn't have the internet?" And he was like, "I'd be fucked. I couldn't do anything. Nothing would work. I couldn't I couldn't put gas in my truck. I couldn't uh, get jobs. I'd be stranded at the side of the road if the internet went out." And I thought, like, you know, and when you, when you put it together, like, you can't, you can't use most point of sale systems in most retail establishments. They're all, they're all ISP based. You can't, you can't do anything. Um, you can't make phone calls. Most, uh, an increasing number of, this was some original research that I did, but an increasing number of, um, mobile phone carriers are using, uh, internet protocol based data transfer to move mobile phone ones and zeros around when you make so when you make a call um that stuff is being moved from from tower to tower with with internet they're not charging you for it as though it's internet they're they're charging you for it as your phone minutes um but it's it's internet everything now is internet your your landline calls are internet and more and more the water that comes out of your pipes is, uh, is you know, that's kept from, that's kept, that's, you know, backflows are prevented via internet-enabled telemetry systems. And increasingly, the people who work at utilities are not aware of how those systems worked before the uh, internet-based automation went into effect. Um, that sort of institutional knowledge is gone. 
Um, so, you know, a lot of those, a lot of utilities could probably survive if the internet went down, but a lot couldn't. There'd be some accidents, definitely. Um, so what I mean is that, is that, um, when it comes to global scale disasters, I think that there are some that we expect and are in, are in a sense prepared for because that we think that they'll like creep up, like, like climate change, flooding from climate change or something like that. Well, those are things that'll happen. You know, Miami will, Miami will be destroyed over the course of decades. It's not something that'll happen all at once. But if the internet blinks off, I don't think we're ready for just how dramatic of a, of a change that will be, how we will all lose this superpower that we've all grown accustomed to having. And none of us are ready to do anything, access our money, communicate with anyone, find information about anything without the internet. So uh, that's something where the the level of unexpected chaos that would ensue uh, genuinely, genuinely left me worried after I researched it. All right, but how likely is something like that to occur? Not all that likely, fortunately. Um, uh, what what I discovered is that um, barring a deliberate attack, the internet is not likely to go down wholesale. You could you could you could you could you know uh, an international uh, subterranean data transfer cable, one of those fiber optic cables under the ocean. Um, one of those could get severed by you know some kind of accident or by a you know by a shark biting it or something like that. Although they say, they say they're shark proof now. Um, so there are, there are pieces of the internet that can, that can get knocked out. There was this lady in Tbilisi, Georgia a few years ago who, who knocked out the internet to, uh, Armenia and, and most of Georgia, uh, by just chopping a cable with an ax, but the entire global internet, it would have to be a, a a deliberate and pretty sophisticated attack probably by a state actor for that to actually happen um and barring somebody who barring barring global scale sabotage by a by a well-funded uh terrorist group or something like that the internet is probably safe just because it's so complicated and it's made of so many different things so that's the good news you know we usually like to end the show on a downbeat uh, but I think somehow it's appropriate for a book of this nature for the show to be a little different and end on a slightly upbeat note. So, sure, I like it. Mike Pearl, thank you so much for coming on the show. The book is The Day It Finally Happens, Alien Contact, Dinosaur Parks, Immortal Humans, and Other Plausible Phenomena. Thanks. Great to be here. All right. Thank you so much for listening, War College listeners. War College is me, Matthew Galt, and Kevin O'Dell, who is about to go back to the Middle East. He'll be gone for about a month, and I will be flying solo, and uh, I'm both mad that he is leaving me and worried about his safety. Kevin knows what he's doing, though. He will be safe and just fine, and we will get to hear all about what he saw and experienced as soon as he gets back. War College was created by myself and Jason Fields, who just entered an essay contest about how we can deal with Russia. His answer was, uh, not much. If you like the show, please like and subscribe, share us on iTunes and all the other places that find pods are casted. You can find us online at war underscore college and myself at MJ Galt and Kevin at KJK Nodell. We'll be back next week. Until then, stay safe.